HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome to Dyed Green on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Kate McCabe. I'm Max Sussman. This week's guest is Ashling Rogerson, founder of the famed Fumbly Cafe in Dublin. Fumbly is a place where you can get lunch. It's a place where you can meet a friend. It's a place where you can get a coffee. It's really a multi-purpose community space, and I think that's what's uh, excited us about it so much, is that it's really kind of what we, when we talk about the third place, which is this thing that is ever elusive, it really seems to um, actually be that, you know? And what is this thing that's ever elusive? Well, the idea behind the third place is that uh, restaurants and cafes sort of serve this really important role. So, you know, the way cities are organized, it seems like everything has this hyper-specific purpose. It's either work or school or, you know, a bank or someplace where transactions happen. And the ability to um, sit and meet a friend or sort of have spontaneous meetings occur are the, the spaces where that can happen are super limited. So, um, you know, thinking about what happens in, in restaurants and cafes and coffee shops as serving this really important role. I don't really know what the first two places are. I think it's work and home. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. What, did, what is the first <laughs> place and what is the second place? You know, another thing that I think is really cool about the Fumbali is that it is a place where you can go as a tourist when you're visiting Dublin and you can sit down next to local people. So it's not just a place that is overrun by tourists. You know, it's, it is a shared space, but it's also welcoming to tourists. Another thing that I think is um, super interesting about Fumbali is how like a lot of people have worked there and a lot of people have worked there that now are either chefs in their own right or have started food businesses on their own. You know, I think it's cool how that happened sort of organically there. And now you hear about a lot of places that are starting up um, and they're like, they're, they're calling themselves incubators 
But then when you like look a little deeper, you're like, well, what are you really incubating here? Like, it seems like you're just incubating your own sort of real estate income, <laughs> for lack of a better Good point. Um, and so I think it's actually really cool how that happened at Fumbly as mainly just as a result of them creating a really good place to work, uh, not having, I think probably the most important thing would be like not having a very hierarchical um, kitchen brigade system. So people can really uh, learn from each other and get to be creative in, um, in a good working environment. And that kind of creates that, that incubation type atmosphere in reality. Yeah. I mean, it's the intention and the purpose behind it. And I think that's something that, a lot of places strive to be, but you can't fake it. You yeah. really can't fake it. And I, I think that's if more places were like the Fumbly, you wouldn't be we wouldn't be experiencing the staff shortages that a lot of restaurants are experiencing mm. these days. Yeah. Yeah. Good good they point. They can be really shitty places to work. Yeah. And it's like that's maybe that's why you're having the shortage, because nobody wants to work for you. They're all working for other places. Perhaps. Let's but that let's not even Let's not go there right now. No. We'll save that for a later episode. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoy our interview with Ashling Rogerson. So thanks for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> so the first thing we wanted to talk about was the inspiration for Fumbali, how it started, and you know, were there other projects you were looking at, either in Ireland or around the world, that led you to want to do something like that? Yeah, so many. Um, so the inspiration for the, like to start at the very beginning, like the fumbly wasn't a planned thing necessarily. It was it was very much a coming together of two people, which was myself and Luca, like fifteen years ago, um, and we had this idea that we wanted to open a little place in Dublin that was selling falafel because at the time nobody was doing falafel in Dublin. It was just one of those little ideas that we had sitting over a pint saying like, man, someone should open a falafel joint in Dublin. And we were like, okay, like, let's do it. And then we, you know, we looked at each other and we were like, do you know how to make falafel? And we were like, no, do you? It was like, no. Okay, cool. So we just kind of set out on this little, um, little journey of a couple of years of gathering ideas, learning how to make falafel, um, and doing a lot of different things at festivals for like the guts of four years. And during that time, we had a number of different food stalls and trucks and stuff that we took around to different events. And we pretty much just any bit of money that we made in those four years, we spent on traveling uh, to different places and bringing back ideas and bringing back inspiration. There was a lot of traveling that we did around Ireland. And then there was a lot, like we went to New York, we went to Sicily, Amsterdam, Paris, Barcelona, London, South of France. Like we just went all over the place for four years. And, and there was so much inspiration, whether it was like, you know, the kind of urban scene in, in Berlin at the time and all the amazing little independent coffee shops and stuff that were springing up like 15 years ago. Or it was like rural Sicily and like meeting a farmer, you know, near Mount Etna and like eating arancini in Catania. And we just took so much of that home and then also spent a lot of time traveling around Ireland um, doing the festival scene in Ireland. But then also like staying with people like the Fergusons down in Gabine in West Cork and 
getting to know all the crew down in Ballymaloo and just meeting loads of like farmers and producers in Ireland and getting so much inspiration from them as well. So like the Fumbly is a total mishmash of that international and homegrown influence and and those years of traveling. Yeah. What is the Irish festival scene for those who are not familiar with it? <laughs> so like uh it's it's pretty good it's pretty banging um like there's i mean like nowadays god i mean obviously the last couple of years everything's gone a bit askew but uh like we were doing maybe like six or seven big music festivals and they could have been anything from actually we like our favorite ones were always the smaller ones which might have been two thousand five thousand people kind of thing up to like the Electric Picnic or Oxygen, which would have been over 50,000, I think, back then. Or, you know, it was the same. It was the same kind of festival scene as you guys would have over there. Same in the UK. A lot of the same, like, acts would be would be touring around. There'd always be, like, your food traders. Um, it's definitely way more, from a food perspective, it's way more interesting now than it was back then. Back then, there was a lot of, like, dodgy chipper vans selling just like really shit burgers and chips and then and there was like a, then there was a small handful of people doing interesting things and we were and we were kind of a part of them but we were like somewhat on the fringes we never used to get the good spots really because <laughs> like we weren't in that like big mafioso chipper van kind of scene um but uh yeah and, and like the, the festival scene right now is even better than it was back then um and in particular like you've got even more food festivals and things in the mix now there was there was amazing i don't know if you know that bali malu had a had a food festival for years the lit fest down there that was incredible that was probably one of the best food festivals that this country has ever seen um and it ran for like five or six years uh, and then came to an end a couple of years before covid hit so you spent um several years traveling and then you ended up in dublin was that always the plan and how did you end up in the neighborhood you ended up and what was the Mm. context at the time and the environment like yeah so i mean we were both based in dublin myself and luca lived in dublin so while at the same time as we were doing all of those festivals and events and traveling around in our vans um we were also part-time running a cafe in dublin in the dublin food co-op um and so the Dublin Food Co-op was in an area of Dublin called Dublin 8 which is where the Fumbly is now um and back then it was like we were in the recession and it was in a neighborhood that was pretty like it was full of old warehouses that were just empty some of them were being occupied by artist studios and kind of different mixed use spaces but a lot of them were still in use by like various different industry or just vacant they were just vacant buildings and then there was this square called new market square which was in the middle of it all and and the co-op had taken on a building in there uh maybe like two or three years before we kind of came on the scene so maybe like 2000 2005 2006 or something like that yeah so we were running the cafe in there part-time and then also after one of our trips to new york we got really inspired by the Brooklyn flea market, came back to Dublin and a couple of our friends were doing a few different kind of markets and they were doing some car sales and stuff. But Dublin didn't at that time either have a really big flea market. 
And so we set up a flea market, which became the Dublin flea market with uh, a friend of ours, Shan Green. And so we were doing that, uh, like that was like the four or five years precursor to the Fumbly. So those kind of three things, the festival, the, the, the cafe and the co-op and, and the Dublin flea market, they were all the recession years. And for us, they were just amazing. It was like for what we were doing back then, it was like the best possible time for us to start a business because we were looking for empty spaces, blank spaces to just create something that we wanted to create with a low rent, which is what you get during a recession. Um, and that's kind of how we found the Fumbly. The Fumbly was this, uh, it was like a ground floor level of an apartment block that had never been rented out because the apartments had just been finished just as the recession was kicking in. So it had been vacant for like, I don't know, seven or eight years before we went to view it. And um, it was just a shell of a unit, nothing in there, no electrics, no nothing. And so we got a really good rent on it and we fitted it out. Uh, and loads of people were telling us, you are crazy to be going into this neighborhood. There's nothing around here. You know, there's nothing going on. It's on the corner of a really lovely lane, Fumbly Lane, but then also like a really busy, like dual carriageway, um, which is not that nice at all. You know, it's just like this thoroughfare of cars. But because, and it, but it's just around the corner from where the Dublin Food Co-op is and where we were, so where we were running the cafe every weekend, where we were running the flea market on a monthly basis. And then we also had an office in this, in this kind of mixed use artist space behind on Mill Street as well. And so we knew, like we were in this area and I lived in the area as well. I'd been living around the Liberties for like, I don't know, eight years or so. Uh, so we knew that there was people there. Because we were in the fringes with all those people, you know, it was kind of like everyone was just hiding out in their little studios and, and whatever. And so we, we knew that they were there. But to, to, to most other people, it was like, there's nobody, you know, what are you talking about? There's nobody in this area. There's nothing here. You need to go into the center of town. But yeah, we went ahead and we did it and, and kind of proved them all wrong. There was another studios in the area called South Studios. There was a, there was a few other people who really, who really were doing something in Dublin 8 at that time. Um, and that kind of, I suppose, brought attention to the area. And then in that like massively unfortunate way that happens in every city in the world, uh, it changes the area and then it suddenly becomes cool and it suddenly becomes expensive. And then, and like Dublin 8 is now one of the more expensive parts of the city and, and all of those vacant warehouse sites and all of those artist studios are now gone. The Dublin Food Co-op is gone um, and it's all being redeveloped for hotels and uh, office and yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, 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 it's one of those ones. It's classic. It's the same as, it's the same as so many other, so many other cities and so many other areas. Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely a familiar story, like everywhere. Mm. <laughs> yeah. How does that impact you uh, as a business owner in that neighborhood? Does it make it harder to hire people, to find people who are, um, like, do people have to come from further away to work there um, because they can't afford to live in the neighborhood? Or have have you had to change anything that you do to sort of accommodate that? No, I mean, like, luckily enough, no, I don't, I don't like ugh, what's going on in Dublin at the moment is like everywhere in Dublin is expensive. I, I think we're, you know, Dublin 8 definitely came out of an area that was really cheap and into a more expensive area. But it seems like the whole of Dublin is now kind of on a par with that. There's no, there's very few corners left that are, that are affordable anymore. So in terms of people having to travel further, 
not necessarily. And Dublin's a pretty accessible city anyway. You know, everywhere is 15 minutes bike ride um, or like, you know, 20 minutes of a bus ride. I feel like we're lucky in that we've managed to like maintain a sense of community where we are. And there's still, there's a huge sense of community still in this area, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of those older, the places that I'm talking about from 12, 15 years ago are gone. There's still, there's still a really amazing sense of community in Dublin 8. And we're still very much a part of that and at the heart of that. And, And we've got like really great regular customers and, um yeah i'm kind of forgetting what your original question was here i think i've gone off <laughs> i think but... that's good <laughs> yeah i think that's good um to yeah. change tracks a little bit you know I-, I wanted to talk about how one of the things that we're trying to do with the podcast and also with our tour company is to expand people's perceptions of what irish food is i think in the u.s people mm-hmm. tend to think you know, Guinness and potatoes, shepherd's pie, um, kind of some of those heavier potato-based, maybe more old-fashioned types of cuisine. And we mm. we saw that recently during the St. Patrick's Day Festival, there was a panel discussion about, um, you know, whether or not Ireland had a national cuisine. And I was wondering if if you could talk about how you see Irish food or how, how you would define it in 2022. Mm. Yeah, I missed that panel discussion. I would have liked to have heard that. What was the outcome of that? It wasn't online, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Okay. We know everyone's talking about yeah. it, but yeah, we've we've had a we actually hosted something like similar ish a few years ago. We used to run a series of events called ITA, um, and as part of that, there was a panel discussion around like Irish food culture and 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 pretty much the same kind of thing. Do we actually have our own? indigenous food culture or not for me what irish food really is is about produce and um i like our culture per se i think is really about um it's it's about the products it's about dairy it is about like meat production whether fortunately or unfortunately um and I, I like what I feel is like the most overlooked part of it as well is like is our is our vegetable growing. It's we can produce such incredible we can grow and produce such incredible produce on this island. Um, and I think for me, like that's where our culture is, the quality of the produce that can be produced here, whether we what we do with that produce we take we tend to take influence from from all over the world and in the more higher end restaurants obviously like like the whole kind of higher end restaurant scene you know since noma kind of led the way for nordic cuisine everyone like you can definitely make a meal out of like solely irish ingredients and it is it is just you know irish food but i wouldn't say that that's necessarily our food culture um I think our food culture is very much influenced from abroad. And I, I used to kind of rile against that and try and say like, no, 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 no. But like, we've got this, we've got to find what our indigenous culture is. And I spent years trying to focus in on that. And I think of, you know, in, in recent times, I'm like, no, it's okay. Like we've got, our culture is in the produce and in the growing and in, in, in the, in the, you know, all the artisan producers who are dotted around the country 
doing doing what they're doing whether it's curing meat or fish or just making different products like for me that's that's where it's at I'm Chava Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. What led you to sort of change your... Um, opinion on that in terms of, you know, the evolution you just described about Irish cuisine Mm. needing to be rooted in in Ireland versus incorporating other influences. I'm curious about that shift. Uh, Yeah, I'm curious about it too. (laughs) God, (laughs) let's let's unpack that one a bit. I think like part of it was like a a desire, a a real desire to, to try and find this thing that like I've got such a love for and a passion for and a connection to, which is food and eating and sharing food around a table with people and going traveling around the world and being a part of that culture in other places around the world and really feeling how strong it is uh, in terms of like Italian food culture or like French or, or Spanish or even like North African and kind of feeling like, you know, oh no, we must be feeling like, I don't know if we have that in Ireland and and then thinking like, oh no, we must, we've got to be able to find that. It's got to be there. So I think it came from a place of like a desire of wanting it to be there and wanting it to be true. Uh, But then the reality is that, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't there and that doesn't it, but it doesn't matter. We've got other things like our, our kind of, our history is like, we're very, we're, we're an agricultural country. We're, we're farming based. There was a lot of poverty in Ireland and people ate really basic food. It wasn't fine dining. It wasn't fine cuisine until very recently. And that's okay as well. You know, and there's, there's all of the, like what we did have was, you know, a culture of dairy products like milk, cheese, um, bread making, meat and fish curing. So those kind of things, and I think like I've just come to celebrate the simplicity of those things a little bit more, um, rather than trying to find this like all-encompassing food culture that you know 
maybe just was never there in the first place. Yeah, I think it's interesting. One of the things that we have noticed as we've been exploring, there are a lot of international chefs, um, people from other places who have moved to Ireland and are doing really incredible things and are interpreting their own regional cuisines using the the really special dairy and meat and produce that you mentioned in Ireland. It's really interesting the way that um, the political history of Ireland and the history of emigration and immigration is really kind of combining to make something, I think, very special and unique in the food world in general. Mm. I think what you're saying is really interesting in terms of, you know, wanting something to be there that's not necessarily there, but then at the same time realizing that there is something there that is really special. I, the way you put it, I think, is really interesting. And even in in, in um, a lot of the older, more traditional Irish cookbooks, there are so many things with dairy that are yeah. like, there's like eight kinds of buttermilk t- style drinks that are made and they all have a yes. different name and a different tradition and a different style. So I, I think that is actually really fascinating um, yeah. culinary history, but like so few of them are actually made anymore. Right. You know, can we see? Can we still see remnants of that in our in our food culture today? Not really. There's a there's a small amount of them, and I think what is what is worth celebrating today is uh, is not necessarily the stuff that was there in the past, which is which is which sets it aside from a culture like it in Italian food culture, where literally you've been having like a risotto that has been made in the same way for like 300 mm-hmm. years, you know, for us, I would say if we were to compare an Irish food product in that way, it would be some of our cheeses and some of our like meat or fish curing, but it's a limited, it's a limited mm-hmm. part. You know? Well, one of the things that I, Kate, maybe you remember, I can't remember who said it on one of our interviews, but that, you know, Irish culture and cuisine for many, many years was defined by people leaving the country. And more recently, it's been partially at least defined by people coming to the country from different parts of the world. So I thought that was a really interesting contrast. Yeah. And I would even add into that, like so much of our food culture now is like Irish people who left in like the 80s or 90s or or the noughties and who went and worked abroad or lived abroad and are coming back with all of this influence and this passion from what they experienced overseas and are coming back over and applying that, you know, techniques and recipes and different things to the produce that can be found here. And that that's, that's grown and produced on this. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, We wanted to talk about Fumbly as a place of, of community as well. And not just, you know, obviously that's closely related to food, but um, Mm. it's a gathering place and a center of sorts. Was that always the intention? Did that develop organically? And has that been something that you've worked to maintain, you know, the whole time it's been open? Yeah, it was, it was definitely at the fore for when we opened up. And to be honest, it was kind of even more at the fore than, than food was. Like what me and Luca really wanted to do was open a place for all of our friends and all of that community that I was talking about that was in Dublin 8, it was a place for them to go because there wasn't anything there at the time. So I would so I would almost say, yeah, like firstly, it was a meeting place and then it was about the food. And 
those two different things have kind of vied with each other at different points over the years. You know, it's sometimes the food becomes turned comes into first place, and then other times, you know, the community focus is is more at the fore. They're two. They're both of them are definitely up there at the top, and have been there since yeah since the very beginning. It has been hard for sure to maintain that community focus in in the fumbly at times and ironically but I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other people who would say the same thing that like the pandemic was something that completely brought back in that community focus I mean it was the only thing that we could do for a year and a half was just only be focused on our local community definitely the couple of years prior to to the pandemic like we had gotten we had gotten really well known. There was like a lot of tourists who were coming in every day and weekends. Like we would see all of our regular locals in kind of like on weekdays and then they wouldn't come near us on the weekend because the weekend was just like overrun with, with the tourists and the day trippers. And we're, we're starting to see that comeback. And we are really, really, really welcoming of that. Like it was definitely the one really nice thing about the Fumbly was that balance that if you are someone, if you are a tourist and you're visiting the city, like you're coming in and you're very much sitting like shoulder to shoulder with with the people from the local area. And there it's a real mix of people in the Fumbly always as well. It's like there's artists and there's the people from the creative communities and there's people from the corporate world and there's a family sitting over there and someone having a cup of tea with their granny and like it's a real mix all the time. What kind of changes did the pandemic lead to specifically in terms of how, what did you do and how did it lead to sort of regaining that community space sense? I have heard other people say the same thing, but you know, the challenge would be how do you build community when people can't physically gather together? What did you do to make that happen? People queuing outside. Yeah. (laughs) That's where it was literally like in those first few weeks, because we, we very, very quickly turned ourselves into a shop. So when we when we were told that we couldn't trade anymore as a cafe, at that time we were currently running a small like farmers market in the stables. So the Fumbly Stables is another building that's just right next door to the to the cafe, which is also a big part of the Fumbly now. The Fumbly is not just the cafe anymore; it really is the Fumbly and the Fumbly Stables. And the Stables is kind of like our event space and our cultural building, and where we do a lot of workshops and education based events and things like that. But so we were running a very small market in there, which we've been running for about a year. And so when uh, when all the restrictions came in, we just kind of moved the market, like from one week to the next, we moved the market into the shop area. And some of, and the producers who were there and still able to travel and, and get to us, they kind of came in. And for the next couple of weeks, we were trading like two or three days a week in the shop, but with all the producers from the market. And we were kind of one of the only places in the area that were doing that. So, yeah, we kind of very quickly became this meeting point still for everyone. But it was more like they were meeting and having chats in the queue outside and then being told they could go in in ones and twos into the the shop and, you know, doing their shopping and then leaving again. But then coming back like the next day or two days later, because it was the only time that they were leaving their houses. And then that was when those really first, like really harsh restrictions were in place. And then things started to ease up and we were able to open a little bit more. We basically stayed operating as a shop 
the kind of the market element of it kind of kind of waned out and we just started adding in more produce we started importing our own organic vegetables and we just made more contact with some local growers and just took, got in their produce and we were just selling them ourselves on more days a week so it became it turned more into a shop than a market and then i guess we were just still that that kind of meeting place for people in in the neighborhood so now at this point do you see a lot of that carrying through or will you be re- planning to return to the format you had before as a cafe will it be a hybrid like what's ha- what's going to happen yeah we're we're currently we're currently a hybrid a hybrid half shop half cafe and i mean that was something last year whenever we were allowed to put seats back in and and operate as a cafe we did and we but we just did it really slowly because we had built up the shop and we had actually had we had kind of had a bit of fun doing it it was almost like you know out of necessity came this opportunity to do something differently and to just work in a different way it was like we got stripped right back down to the basics and we were building ourselves back up again but we were able to change all the little systems and things that we were like oh well that wasn't working anyway so let's just change that and let's try and you know be something different for a while and so when we were allowed to become a cafe again we decided actually you know what we we kind of like what we're offering here now in terms of all the local produce and for once all the all the kind of people that we were working with who were making amazing products that we would put on our menus we were now able to present to people in the shop and all the like incredible vegetables that are grown by people like McNally's and Riversfield and Elmhurst and 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 things we could have like all of their all of their vegetables on display and and for everyone to get any day of the week so yeah, we we just decided we were going to keep it, and so we're now this uh, we're now this hybrid scenario that we are sticking with for the moment, and it's really nice. And we get we get really positive feedback from people. Like even now at the moment, we're seeing people coming back in who we haven't seen like in over two years. You know, we're only just still coming out of the pandemic. You know, we're not we're not fully out of it yet. And so there's familiar faces who are coming back in and they're and they're really they're they're just giving us such lovely feedback by saying that the place just feels really nice. The atmosphere is 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 lovely and it's still what it used to be, but it has this kind of added element now of all of the fresh produce. We still have to tweak the business model a little bit. That's kind of that's the tricky part, but we're getting there. It's my understanding beyond just being um, a great cafe in a community space that You've also sort of operated, maybe not intentionally, but kind of as a training ground for up-and-coming chefs in um, the Dublin area. I think there's been a lot of people that have worked for you that have gone on to do their own really cool food projects. Can you talk a little bit about that? Was that sort of intentional or is that just kind of the way yeah. that things go when you're, when you're a really cool, homegrown, exciting business? I, yeah, it definitely wasn't intentional. I, I don't think you can you can set out to to uh, to have such a such an amazing alumni of staff. Like I'm, I I almost look at it in the opposite direction. I'm like, wow, how lucky we were that all of these amazing people who are now doing wonderful things just happened to have worked for us at one point, you know. But I I, I mean, I am aware that it's a, it's a it's a two way street. Like both, you know. Definitely, we've had some really incredible people working with us who are now doing amazing things, like Katie Sanderson and Jasper O'Connor, who have the White Mouse product range. Harry Colley, who is doing Harry's Nut Butter, 
There's Laura Colwell, Keith Coleman, um, Sinead Moclair, who am I forgetting? I mean, there's so many like really incredible chefs who have gone on to do wonderful things. I don't know what exactly it was. I mean, there's definitely something in the, the way that we run our kitchen that is, so we've always kind of approached it from, from a non-hierarchical structure. I, I don't even like using the word non-hierarchical because it kind of like there there is always like unspoken hierarchy in any sort of systematic working environment. But it's a circular kitchen. It basically means that like everyone is working together with the same amount of responsibility and they move around the kitchen in different roles rather than moving up and down a ladder of hierarchy. What this allows for is a huge amount of creative input from everyone. It's not just a head chef who's saying like, okay, this is what we're doing today and you're going to execute these dishes. Like everyone has an input into the menus on a daily basis and everyone shares responsibility and you're really thrown into the deep end sometimes. It is definitely not an imperfect, it's definitely not a perfect system. It has its imperfections like big time. But I think the kind of like what that atmosphere and what that kind of freedom that we give to the chefs creates in a way is is a fast track for them to figure out what it is that they truly want to do because we kind of give them the space to do that but within the the kind of safety net of the fumbly it's like hey you want to do something you want to put something on the menu absolutely go and do it and like you know, your pal over there is going to be doing something next week and they buzz off each other. That's partly to do with it. I mean, I think there's also something to be said for, you know, the synergy and energy of something that is like when you're so passionate about something and then you attract other people who are passionate and then that whole, you know, that passion and that energy just creates something really special together. And it's kind of self-perpetuating and self-feeding. And that was for years. That's always been the way. And it's still there now. But we definitely got wobbled off that by, by the pandemic, for sure. And it's very difficult, as in, I, I believe, the rest of the world at the moment. It's very difficult to find chefs. And it's very difficult to kind of, I suppose, tempt people into the industry, which is unfortunately an un- still an underpaid and overworked industry. We do our best in terms of work-life balance. And, you know, our chefs only work a four-day week. and despite all the freedom and creativity and things that they get, like it's still a hard place to work. And and I think there's a new wave of chefs that are going to be coming in, but uh, it's going to take a couple of years to get back up to that level of, I suppose the, the experience and the skill that was there post or pre pre pandemic. Yeah. I mean, just it's, I think it's really interesting and to think about the context in which you started off in terms of the recession and the the community of artists that was around uh, compared compared to now, and to note that a lot of the alumni that you mentioned went on to do non restaurant food projects, and I was just in general wondering if you thought like you know what's the climate now? Do you think that someone could start a similar project in a different city now, or do you think the the climate, maybe the real estate prices or the labor market? You know, is it too hard to do now? Do you think this is this is something that was a once in a generation project, or do you think that, um, yeah, something like it could emerge similarly now? Do when you say project, you mean like yeah, the yeah, in, in, totally, overall? totally. Okay, 
I think it can totally be done anywhere in any city, in any part of the world. It comes down to the people and it comes down to the passion and it comes down to the, the desire to create something together with other people. And, and that can be done, you know, no matter where you are in the most expensive city in the world, in which Dublin currently is, you will always find the nook or cranny that you need to find if what you want to do is, is truly like what you want to do and you're, and you're super passionate about it. Yeah, I think it's more of an attitude thing rather than uh, an economic or a, yeah. I mean, that's, that's not denying. It definitely is harder now to find places with affordable rent. But there's also other ways of doing things. I think it might force people to go into more kind of collaborative projects that aren't necessarily, you know, so so profit driven or something. I don't know. There's a whole new, there's got to be a whole new way of, of feeding people that emerges in the next few years. You know, I think anyway, pre-pandemic like we were kind of hitting the saturation point of restaurants and the restaurant scene and the kind of you know top 10 lists and all this kind of stuff you know let's go back to basic guides and let's just let's just you know sit down around a table and have a meal together and let's feed people and let's bring nourishment and health into that you know as well and enjoyment and laughter and it doesn't all have to be about being on a list and being seen in a place the new place in town or whatever and i think that there's ways from from a business model perspective i think that there's ways to go about that 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 will be able to get around the you know the kind of like rising rents in cities and and those other kind of issues we just actually started last year i mean in the middle of the pandemic God knows how, but we somehow managed to introduce a profit share uh, system into the into the company, which was something that we've been talking about for a number of years. And we finally did it last year. And actually, just a couple of weeks ago, we just handed out our first share of the profits to our staff, which just felt so amazing. And I kind of like that's where it's those kind of things that I would love to put my energy into now over the next if we're still here in another decade's time. I feel like that's the really important stuff alongside you know, the produce and maintaining those relationships with suppliers and offering the chefs and the staff the opportunities, you know, to to kind of grow and be their best selves as well. Um, we were wondering if you could share, you know, any more about your long-term vision and, and what's next and, you know, what the next evolution is going to look like. We had a vision that we wrote down in 2019 as well that, yeah, I should go and look back over that. I'd say, I don't know, I can't even remember what it says now because it's literally like just the last two years have just completely changed everything, you know? Also, like a, a, a big thing that happened just in the last year is is my business partner, Luca, has has moved back to Tuscany, to Italy, where he's from. And so that kind of changes things as well. And, and there's a little bit of unknown and a little bit of uncertainty around, okay, well, you know, where are we going to be now in, in five or 10 years time? I know that we've just signed another lease for the Fumbly. So we're here, you know, we're, we're definitely signed up and ready to go. But I think for me, again, one of those like blessings in disguise from the pandemic, it really refocused my attention on that sense of community and and going back to basics and also maybe like to go back to what we started talking about at the beginning like you know moving away from that kind of 
you know, drive towards oat cuisine and trying to find the perfect Irish meal and all this kind of stuff. And really just going back down to like, what's really important is sitting around a table and sharing a meal with friends and family. And, and it's so easy to get sidetracked from that simple thing, you know, and, and so many restaurants and so many cafes do get sidetracked from it, even though it's, I think at the heart of every cafe owner, that's where they're at. They're really driven to open their businesses because there's something so beautiful about just cooking for people and, and, and being part of that enjoyment. And I think if we can maintain that sense of community and sense of connection to food and to our maintaining the, the relationships that we have with our, with our local suppliers, who also feed into that sense of community as well. Like that's kind of, if we can still be doing that in another 10 years time in a very true sense that, that feels right. I think that's where the success is. I think we've achieved a lot in the last 10 years and to just, to just still be here in another 10, that's, that's what it's about. You know, I mean, it's, it's a hard enough industry to, to still be going after 10 years. And I think, I think sustaining a business in, in the food world is one of the most difficult things. And I suppose my vision would be, would be just about, about that and kind of honing in, honing in on the smaller things instead of, (laughs) I'm really like, I'm really going back down to basics and into the internal and the smaller rather than trying to expand or get bigger it's more about focusing in on the personal you know relationships with customers and suppliers and the well-being of our staff expanding things like the profit share and other kind of internal structures within the company that can help benefit more people who are working with us great amazing well thank you so much for being on the show and for talking to us today this is really great no you're very welcome thanks for asking me on absolutely Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.